How do I tell you about my conversion to Christ without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck? Truth be told, it felt a little of both. The usual narrative just doesn't work for me. I didn't just read one of those, um, you know, Christianese self-help books and um, compare my life to the teachings of Scripture and cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ. Nor was I supernaturally zapped to um, feel like I was a completely different individual and therefore, you know, fell elegantly into the arms of my Savior. Um, none of that happened. While I did make choices along the course of this journey, they never felt logical, risk-free, or even sane. Heretical as it might sound, both Christ and Christianity seemed imminently resistible. And so my Christian life unfolded as I was just living my normal life. And in the normal course of life, questions emerged that exceeded my secular lesbian feminist worldview. Um, Those questions would have probably remained dormant, I suppose, Um, but in God's providence, I had a Christian neighbor. His name was Ken Smith, and he and his wife, Floyd, entered into my life to be the supreme interpreters for me before I could interpret for myself what was going on. By the time I had met Ken and Floyd Smith, I had spent one decade of my life in lesbian relationships, serially monogamous lesbian relationships. And I had spent um, at least a decade, maybe a little bit more at this point, advancing LGBTQ rights and causes. And the world that we live in now, with um, the world that we live in now in the U.S., and perhaps that you will have as well, I'm sorry to say, Um, with constitutional rights to gay marriage and abortion, was very much the world that I helped create. The blood is on my hands. Now, everyone's story of sexual sin is different, and the reason for that is because sin makes more work for people. And so, you know, this is my story. Um, It is not everyone's story um, about homosexuality, but it is mine. Um... I didn't actually see myself as a lesbian until long after the time that other people did. And I've often thought about it. What if I had been in a godly environment where people didn't sexualize everything about everything? But I wasn't. Um, And so so when in my 20s I I dated men, I... um, But often, as I was dating men, I was falling in love with women. And um, then at 28, I met my first lesbian partner, and really life just came together for me and made sense. Uh, My life at this time seemed normal. I was a a professor uh, of English and women's studies at Syracuse University, and I had been hired and recruited and mentored and eventually tenured to lead the LGBTQ rights program, the academic program, which is called Queer Theory. Um, And so my life was really, you know, happy and meaningful and full. Um, Quite frankly, I just simply always, I would say to you that I just prefer symmetry to asymmetry. 
And I thought I had just found my real self. Um, I found Christians to be peculiar. And I found it especially strange that my students seemed to think that knowing Jesus meant needing to know very little else. Christians also seemed like very bad readers to me. Um, Often they would use the Bible to end a conversation rather than to deepen it, almost like a punctuation mark. And that was really odd. The other truly odd thing to me about Christians was the way they would read the Bible. I mean, people would tell me, well, this is my verse of the day, and then this is my verse of the day, and then they'd flip around, and then this is my verse of the day. And I'm just telling you, like, don't try to read Jane Eyre like that. It won't work. You know, I, I, it, it seemed per- perplexing. It was almost like this was a book filled with, you know, little mints to suck on, or um, your horoscope, or the little paper inside a fortune cookie. And it just seemed strange to me. It seemed very strange to me. I was a 19th century scholar. I was fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. I believed in the importance of standing with the disempowered. And my life at this time was happy and meaningful and full. My partner and I were involved in many important civic causes, AIDS activism, our Unitarian Universalist Church, Golden Retriever Rescue. Truly, it was hard to argue that she and I were anything but good citizens and good caregivers. Indeed, the gay community from which I come practices hospitality with skill and perseverance, and um, I use the hospitality gifts that I honed in my queer community. I use that today as a pastor's wife. Well, after my tenure book was written, I began writing the next one on the religious right because I was really fascinated, basically, while people like you hated the person I used to be. Um, and quite frankly, I considered you all students and, and uh, you know, members of evangelical churches to be the chief hate mongers that compromised or that comprised this assault against me. You people simply terrified me. And 20 years ago, I faced my fear of you by trying to write a book about why the Bible and its applications are not relevant in a secular world. Now, to write this book, you know, I'm an English professor. I can't just go around and interview people, come to New Horizons and say, well, what do you think of this and what do you think of that? I actually have to read stuff. So I sat down and I started reading the Bible. And that was fascinating. I I really was compelled by this book. And I'll tell you, I I didn't know, nobody ever told me that you're supposed to read it by just flipping around and finding, you know, verses. So I just sat down and read it like a book. And I would try to just read a whole book in the first sitting, you know, to get a feel for it. And a lot happens when you do that. I mean, you know, if you are ever wondering how long it took for sin to enter the world and for death to enter the world... After Genesis 3, if you just go home and sit down and read Genesis, it won't seem slow. I mean, it'll seem like like Adam and Eve sinned and there was a bloodbath. So I was really smitten by the, by the narrative power of this book. Um, I was really taken by <clears throat> its complex philosophy. I was really, um, I don't know, it, 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 my heart would sing with the poetry in the Psalms. And at the same time, this Bible held a worldview that I simply hated. Sin, repentance, 
Sodom and Gomorrah? I thought that was just totally absurd. And at this time, a Christian men's movement called the Promise Keepers came to our university, and I don't even know what happened. I mean, maybe my favorite parking spot was taken. Nothing, you know, really, like it wasn't, nothing you could really write about. Um, But I was on a war against patriarchy. And so I wrote an article and I published it in the local newspaper. And this New York newspaper gave me a whole back page so that, you know, it's the whole page. And they gave a title. It was Promise Keeper's Message is a Danger to Democracy. And if you want to throw around fighting words in the United States, that's what you say. Threat to my freedom, threat to my democracy. And so immediately I started getting feedback on this editorial, uh, feedback in the form of either hate mail or fan mail. And, you know, I started to think, you know, sometimes hate mail and fan mail sort of, it, it has the same aesthetic. You know, it's, they're both, it's both a little bit, a little bit uh, uh, assaulting in some ways. So I'd get a letter and I would just put it in whatever box, hate mail, fan mail, hate mail, fan mail. And then one day I got a letter from Pastor Ken Smith from the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And His truly was the kindest letter of opposition I've ever received. Um, His letter really puzzled me. You see, I was really suspicious of both the worldview that Christians espoused and 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 how they just how they thought about people like me. I mean, I had seen uh, my share of Bible verses on placards at Gay Pride Day, and that Christians who mocked me at Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everybody I love was going to hell was as clear as, you know, the sky being, well, whatever color it is right now. It was blue about five minutes ago, but I know in Northern Ireland that that was five minutes ago. But Ken's letter was different. It, It didn't mock. It engaged. It teased out some of the questions I was actually asking and it, it seemed to me that Ken was a very smart reader, a very good thinker, and maybe a reasonable opponent. You know, someone who, think, who definitely thought differently than I did, but who could do so without personal animosity. And so at the end of the letter, he asked if, he, if I would like to come to his home for dinner. And I thought that would be fantastic because I wanted to sit down and talk with him. The LGBTQ community is also a community highly given to hospitality. Um, during This was the 90s in New York. The AIDS crisis was ricocheting through our culture. Everyone's home was open some night of the week in the LGBTQ community to simply talk about life and problems, to work on policymaking, all of that. So, uh, you know, I was comfortable going to someone's home, and also he was my neighbor, But something else, I I also really thought that Ken Smith would be the best unpaid research assistant I could ever have for this book. So I liked his pedigree, and I wanted to meet him. But something else happened when I started meeting with Ken and Floyd. Ken and Floyd and I became friends. They actually entered my world. They came to my home when I was having my friends over, and they listened and they, and, they, and, they, and they talked, but they listened also. They knew we were not just a bunch of blank slates waiting for Jesus to fill us up so that we could, you know, go from black and white to color. We would talk openly about sexuality and politics, and they did not act as though such conversations were polluting them. Um, and when we ate together, Ken would pray in a way that I, would sim- I simply had never heard before. 
His prayers were vulnerable. His prayers were intimate. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. And I couldn't help but to notice that Ken's God was nothing like the God that I had thought I knew about or what the God that I thought was the God of the Bible. You see, Ken's God was holy, but also firm, but also full of mercy. And this was all very confusing to me. And then what was also confusing to me was what happened at the end of our first meal. This was crazy. At the end of our first meal, Ken, Floyd, shake my hand, give me a hug. It was really nice to get to know you. Would you like to come back next week? That would be awesome. Okay, thanks a lot. And I'm standing there. And I'm, I'm waiting for it, right? I mean, I'm the out lesbian feminist activist. I'm, I've got like the horns on my head. I was waiting for the gospel presentation. He didn't give it. I mean, think about it, people. He took the risk that I was going to get in my car and drive a mile. And if I got hit by a meteor, it wouldn't have been his fault. But then even crazier still, he didn't even invite me to church. I mean, doesn't everybody get invited to church? I thought maybe I was chopped liver. But I will tell you what. Because Ken did not lambast me with the Christian rule book as I had come to know it, when he clasped his hand in mine at the end of the meal, I felt like it was safe to squeeze that hand. Ken was making a pledge to me that that we were going to get to know each other before he just trampled over me with his Christian worldview. He made it clear that this wasn't just a kind of, I wasn't just Ken's project, that I was Ken's neighbor, and that that was meaningful. And so in the spirit of writing this research project, I began meeting with Ken and Floyd weekly, sometimes more than weekly, and reading the Bible in earnest. I had a research leave at the time, which allowed me to read the Bible up to five hours a day. So I was really, you know, chugging through this thing. And I was simply reading the Bible in the way that I was trained to read a book, whole books at a time. I'm what's called a whole book uh, scholar. That means that my job is to look at an entire book and try to put it together, um, try to see how it fits together. And slowly and over time, I couldn't step away from the fact that the Bible really did start to take on a life and a meaning that really startled me. And some of my well-worn paradigms were just not holding up to it, And I really did have to ponder the hermeneutical claim that this book really was different from all the others. That's what Ken was saying. This is alive. All those other books are dead. This one's alive. God is inherently true and trustworthy, and so is his his Bible. And so uh, there was a difference to this book, a difference in how it communicated its truth, how it was put together, how it was sticking with me. Um... But I fundamentally rejected what I believed was the false simplicity of Christian logic. That would be its doctrine of sin and its belief that the Bible was God-breathed. You see, I wasn't sure what to make of this, so I actually wrote this in my journal. When I am working on a book, and I'm working on a book trying to understand what people who don't think like me think, I I tend to try to write out what I think they believe. And part of why I was doing this, I had a stick on my desk at the time that said I would rather be wrong on an important subject than right on a trivial one. And I still believe that. 
So this is what I wrote in my journal after reading through the Bible once. Christians believe that because Jesus paid with his life for the sin of those who repent and believe in him, they will have Christ's power to flee even from unchosen sin, which the Bible records as treason against God and punishable by death and hell. At the same time, the Bible offers, as soon as it offers an admonition about sin, will often and often will also offer an invitation of grace. And so it seems to me that the God of the Bible deals differently with people when people deal differently with him. So that was what I thought was a kind of a clear outsider's snapshot of what the Bible says. But how in the world could that system work for me? I didn't think I was hurting anyone. I believed I was being my authentic self. And I recoiled at the idea that being a lesbian was living in sin. I mean, really, who in their right right mind would choose a God that you can't see over a lover that you can? And so I concluded that the gospel might be very good news for, you know, many of you people. But for anybody who identified on the LGBTQ spectrum, the gospel was very, very, very bad news. But then I had to confront something else. I mean, you know, Ken Smith, I'd share this with Ken, and, and he wouldn't jump all over it. He'd, mm-hmm, yeah, mm. But what about? And so th- when I shared that with Ken, his, but what about? Every time I'd, I'd oppose something, Ken would bring me back to the attributes of God. That's it, the attributes of God. Who is God? Who is God? And how do we know? And so one of the things he, he wanted me to think about is that, well... But if God's the creator of all things, you know your, your position just doesn't hold up. So I thought, hmm, let me think this through. And this is, how, this is the way I was processing at the time. If God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his sense of, of power and authority behind it, his, his seal of truth, then it really did seem to me logical that the Bible had the right to interrogate my life and my culture and not the other way around. I mean, even as a postmodern reader, I understood that authority could only depend upon that which is higher than itself. I mean, I was a professor, after all, and if your paper was due on Wednesday and you just didn't get around to giving it to me until Friday, it wasn't going to go well for you. I mean, you may be a very nice person and you walk your dog and you water your plants and You know, maybe the dog ate your homework, but I still had more power than you. And so that made me think about it. You know, who has more power than God? Well, my friends knew that I was reading the Bible and that it was becoming more than a research project to me. And at the weekly gathering that my partner and I hosted, my transgendered friend Jill cornered me in the kitchen, and she put her large hand over mine, and she said, Rosaria... This Bible reading is changing you. It is. It's changing you. And I felt exposed. Jill was one of my wiser friends, and and she knew me very well. And so I just said it. I said, Jill, what if it's true? I mean, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we all are in very big trouble? Jill exhaled deeply, and she said something that I'll never forget. She said, Rosaria, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you'd like, I'll pray for you. Well, 
this was a vi- this was a bomb, right? You know, this is just a bomb. And of course, now you know what gay rights activists talk about in the kitchen, which also might be surprising. But um, it, it was such a I was so disoriented by what by what by what Jill said. I mean, on the one hand. It, that gave me a kind of secret tacit permission to keep reading this Bible and rooting around in it for life's purpose and help and meaning. But at the same time, you know, what she said about healing really bothered me. I mean, I didn't have a sinus infection. I didn't have plantar fasciitis. My knees were still good. I didn't need healing. I was a gay rights activist. I believed gay was good. And even the Bible I was reading didn't say I needed healing. It said I needed to repent of my unchosen sin and quite frankly, I didn't like either of those terms, so I just, in my pride, rejected them both. And the next day, when I came home from work, I found two big milk crates of books. These were Jill's books from seminary, and Jill was giving them to me. Now, back in the days before people read and wrote on these, these devices that light up, when you had paper and pen and you had your own book, you could write anything in the margins, We used to call it marginalia. There was even a word for it. And I discovered something amazing as I was flipping through these books. It was like Jill kept a journal in the margin of these theology books. And so there were many things about Jill's life I didn't know. I didn't know that Jill, um, I I actually didn't know Jill's real name. I didn't know the name of Jill's, you know, wife and children. I didn't know Jill's former home address. There was this whole life that I never knew about. And so I just sat there pretty compulsively reading the margins, trying to puzzle together my friend's fractured life. And then I got to Calvin's Institutes in its exposition on the, on the book of Romans. And in big block handwriting, which was very different, Jill had very large, cursive, loopy handwriting, and then big block handwriting, watch out. And although I had read the Bible many times through at this point, it is true that certain verses I skipped because I just thought they were bad for me. I just thought they would hurt me too much and that they were filled with hypocrisy. But there was something about Jill who had faced it and said to watch out for it that gave me the courage to read it. And this is Romans 1, starting with verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than they creator. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Even their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And the verse goes on. These verses seem to provide a haunting literary echo to Genesis 3. I'd never seen this before. Remember, I'm a whole book scholar, so I'm trying to figure out how this Bible fits together, even as 66 books, as a whole. And it struck me that Eve's desire to live independently of God's authority made perfect sense to me. These two literary frames, one in Genesis and one in Romans, seem to stand out as the table of contents 
of what ails the world. And indeed, I, I thought it was a very decent thing. Romans 1 doesn't actually end by highlighting homosexuality in any particular way. But it was a little shocking to me, too, because I was waiting for it to define homosexuality differently. And it didn't. I mean, there's just nowhere in the Bible, but certainly not in Romans 1, where you see homosexuality described as a morally neutral form of sexual orientation. You don't see it here. There's nothing here that says, and there's a category of humanity called gay people. It's not here. There's no discrete and separate category of inherited personhood organized around homosexuality the way people believe it to be true today. Instead, this passage finds its crescendo in how one's sin, homosexuality, morphs into other sins. Quote, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same thing, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. This last line really grabbed my attention. And although I had read the Bible many times through, this was the first experience I had in reading the Bible where I literally felt like it was reading me. You see, this last line told me, that anybody who cannot receive a blessing from God will demand it from men. Let me say that again. If you cannot receive a blessing from God, and if you have a, a, a sin in your life that is your God, you cannot receive a blessing from God. So if you cannot receive a blessing of God, you will not just walk away empty-handed. You will demand it from men. You will become excellent political activists. You will organize a society. You will convince a community that you are a victim in need of civil rights. You will do it. And, we, and I, as the political activist professor, saw myself in this, in this section of scripture, and I didn't like it. But I also took note of the theological diagnosis Homosexuality in the Bible here is presented as one step in the journey away from God's blessing and protection. I also took note of of what the Bible did not say about homosexuality. It just didn't recognize homosexuality as a noun, as a category of personhood. You see, the world has accepted that the 19th century category invention of sexual orientation is an accurate category of personhood and identity. But that's not how the Bible understands homosexuality. Homosexuality, from God's point of view, is Adam's thumbprint on some of us. It is an identity-rooted, ethical outworking of original sin. And and therefore, it it seems solidly biblical to me to say that some of us are born this way. Because truth be told, we're all born in Adam this way, distorted by original sin, one way or another— But by failing to rigorously relinquish my identity to God's story, which is, by the way, what everyone has to do, but by failing to do it and failing to understand that the fall rendered my deepest, most primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue, I had actually added to my ledger of original sin by creating for myself a category of personhood that God did not 
God has one category of personhood. We are male and female image bearers of a holy God with a soul that will last forever and a body that is sexually differentiated that will inherit itself to either the New Jerusalem or hell. There simply is no biblical category of personhood subsumed under the 19th century category invention of sexual orientation. Instead, the Bible declares that we are made in the image of God and that we have a sin orientation in Adam and a soul orientation in eternity and once born again in Christ, a new citizenship, one that came in exchange for the life that you loved, not in addition to it. In spite of believing, living, and teaching the idea that sexuality and gender were social constructs, the Bible made clear to me that God has set ethical and moral responsibilities, blessings, and constraints for being born male and female, and that I am accountable to these responsibilities, whether they feel good to me or not. I had taught, studied, read, and lived a radically different notion of personhood and sexuality. And for the first time in my life, I wondered if I was dead wrong. So threatened by what this book was doing to me, I decided I needed to take a little vacation and uh, not do a research project on the Bible. And I also thought this might be a good time to try to break up with Ken and Floyd because I would have no need for their services any longer now that I wasn't writing a book on this. And because Ken and Floyd were my friends, and only because they were my friends, they were able to convince me to drop the research assignment but keep reading the Bible so that I could at least get an answer to my questions. Among other things, I was fighting the idea that the Bible is inspired and inerrant and that the biblical authors were moved by the Holy Spirit to record the word of God and that the Bible is completely true and without error. I mean, how could a smart cookie like me believe these things? I was a postmodernist, and I didn't even believe in truth. I believed in truth claims. And I believed that the reader constructed the text, that a text's meaning only finds its own power in the reader's interpretation of it. I had told thousands of of college students that a book is just paper and glue, ready for you to read it, to bring it to life. How dare this book tell me that it's the only living book? How dare this one book lay claim to a birthright and a progeny radically different than every other single book on the planet? And after years of this, something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world, and I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I had first met Ken and Floyd Smith, and two years after I had started reading the Bible for my research, I left the home I shared with my lesbian partner, and an hour later, I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I felt like a freak sitting there, and I kept thinking about last year's Gay Pride March, wide as it was with people just like me, people who made me feel safe and loved, and people I loved as family. When I crossed the threshold into the church, I was feared that I would become a traitor to all the people I loved in the world, and I did. I kept going back to church to hear more sermons, 
I had made friendships with people in the church by this time. I was perplexed by how they referenced the Bible in the details of their day. You know, English professors by training love textual cross-referencing. The more ancient the book and the more you have memorized, the more excited we are in general. Um, But it seemed to me that there was something really odd about the way my Christian colleagues were doing this. They would put themselves under the authority of the scriptures. They were inside God's story. They were inside God's ontology. And I wondered, is it safe? Is it deadly? I mean, I certainly knew that it would have been deadly for me to do. And I was noticing something else about my Christian friends. I mean, even the engineer and the, like, accounting types, they were able to read this Bible better than I was. They were able to see the way it fit together. And furthermore, they, they showed a kind of grace and restraint in faculty meetings that no one else did. They didn't gossip. They didn't curse. It wasn't so much what they did do. It was what they didn't do that was so surprising to me. And I really wondered, why don't I understand? Why don't I understand this Bible the way they do? At this time, Ken Smith was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew with its bewildering cast of characters and problems, unsuspecting folks separated unto the Gospel, some nameless kids, bread and fish, feeding 5,000, and then Jesus' cutting question to impetuous Peter, do you still lack understanding? Well, one Lord's Day, Pastor Ken just stopped right there, turned his steel blue eyes on the congregation, held us in the longest pause I have ever seen anybody do in public speaking. It was so long that I thought we should call 911, and I just kind of wondered what the frozen chosen do and the old man's having a heart attack. I mean, there wasn't even a prayer vigil starting. But then he perked up again. And he asked a question that was simply a bomb of a question to me. He said, congregation, did Christ ever say this to you? Why do you lack understanding? And this really startled me because this was my question. This was the question I just asked myself. And for a split second, before I could just shove all this back down into the recesses of my consciousness, I had to face one hard question. Who in the world is speaking there? That old man I thought was about to have a heart attack? Or the God-man behind the foundation and the redemption of his people? And the image that crashed like waves in a raging sea of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth, not only because we called ourselves gay, but because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous, We rejected the Bible's interpretive authority over our sexuality, our sexual identity, and our sexual practice. You see, if the Bible is true, I was dead. And people of God, if the Bible isn't true, or if it's just semi-true, or if it's just true if it corresponds to the way I feel, or if it's just true in the red letters, then you people are simply staring at the biggest fool on earth. But God's promises rolled in like another round of waves into my world. And one Lord's Day, Ken was preaching on John seven seventeen. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. You see, this verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them and tell other people what to think. 
And I expected in all areas of my life that understanding came before obedience and not the other way around. And I realized I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. Perhaps I thought like Eve in the garden. I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. And that's when I thought about it. Hadn't I actually done that already? I mean, hadn't we all? If my consciousness fell in Adam's sin, as the Bible purports, no wonder I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. This wasn't a game of thinking and the matching of wits. But the Bible was asking me a different question, and this is the question. Could my heart echo God's call for obedience? Could I will to do God's will? Just this once. The stakes were so very high because they always are. But the verse promised understanding after obedience, and I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? I have a PhD in arguing. It's, you know, it's my gift. I like using my gifts. So I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. Friends in the church had counseled me to do that. And I prayed that God would be pleased to reveal his son in me. And then I came to something really awkward. I prayed that I would be a person of Jesus. And I thought, wow, that sounds almost, you know, communist. I want to be a comrade for Jesus. I thought, why am I afraid to say woman? <laughs> I mean, it, just, the, just the fact of my weird language made me face something. That I didn't know how to be a woman. I had this terrifying Desire, though, to make biblical sense of my place in the world as a woman defined by God. And so I I started to pray that God would make me a godly woman. And then I realized, no, Lord, I don't even know what it means to be a woman. So before you you tag on the godly part, you're just going to have to help me understand what it means to be a woman. And praying to be a woman was the most terrifying prayer I think I've ever prayed I had never thought about these things in my life. And I truly left that night of prayer just pondering one simple question. Could original sin be for real? And could it really distort me like this? Is my sexual desire for women a reflection of the real me or a distortion of it through original sin? Is being a lesbian my authentic self? Or is it Adam's thumbprint on my life? Who am I, I wondered. Philosophers sometimes distinguish between the real and the true. The real is the lived and the felt, and the true is the deeper ontological. And I wondered if being a lesbian, while real, was perhaps not true. If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul and the spirit, judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, couldn't he make my true identity prevail? Who will God have me to be? I still felt like a lesbian in my body and heart. That is, I felt my flesh's identity. But what is my Christian identity? The Bible makes clear that the fallen flesh and a redeemed mind have a very troubled relationship this side of eternity. For many people in the Bible, their redeemed identity and calling comes only after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, with dreams and hopes and plans dashed and destroyed. What will become of me if Jesus takes over, I wondered. You see, the cross is ruthless. 
It's an instrument of execution, as Gilbert said this morning. It simply makes no ally with the sin that it crushes in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I had a really scary feeling. What if I commit my life to Christ and my lesbian feelings never disappear? Does that mean that God does not love me or hear me or care? Is the gospel bad news for people who identify on the LGBTQ spectrum? And then I remembered some of the questions that Ken Smith would always tell me to ask myself when I started to ask too many questions about myself. Who is this Jesus? Did I know him? Did I still lack understanding? Could I trust him? And then one ordinary day I came to Jesus. We were in church and we were singing from Psalm 119. And when the line, this has become mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing, I gasped in horror because I had just sung condemnation unto myself and was actually in tune with the Holy Spirit enough to feel his convicting rebuke. I mean, I almost laughed out loud. It was so powerful. You see, this Bible was not mine. I had scorned it and cursed it and despised it and taught thousands of college students to do the same. But at the same time, I had read the Bible many times through, and I saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. I heard for myself that when the phrase, this has become mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing, I was attesting to this one simple truth that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required the wrestling with scripture that I had done and that I just really wanted God to speak into my life. I wanted him to hear my prayers, and I wanted him to take over my life. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and each tittle, was my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention, I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. You see, I had no dignity upon which to stand. As an advocate for peace and social justice, I thought I was on the side of kindness, integrity, diversity, and care. It was thus a crushing revelation to discover it. It was Jesus I was persecuting the whole time. Not just some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, My Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my king, my savior, my redeemer, my friend, that Jesus. Of course, there's only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You are confronted with his holiness. You are confronted with what it means to fear God and love him at the same time. And I started doing the only thing you can do when you are in that posture. I started repenting of my sin. I started by repenting of pride, the pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules for faith and life and for sexual autonomy, the pride that said that I was entitled to live separately from God, the pride that led me to believe that self-worth and self-esteem were self-invented. Repentance is the daily posture of the Christian and the threshold to a holy God. Repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian consciousness because it proves only the obvious, that God was right all along. 
Conversion did not immediately change my sexual desires for women. You see, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. But converted I was, and therefore I could not make a false peace with my sin. I had to break up with my girlfriend. And then after that, I had to break up with all women. I had to break up with the codependence that that informs lesbian relationships and all of the other attachments. There were books I had to throw away, TV shows I couldn't watch, music I could no longer listen to. In God's world, this is called wisdom. In today's world, this is called spiritual abuse. The gospel comes in exchange for the life you love, not in addition to it. Gospel life is cross-bearing life. And sin, even unchosen sin, produces suffering. Well, after a year of this, for me, something in addition happened after I crossed the threshold into faith in Christ. My prayer to be a godly woman morphed into a prayer to be a godly wife. Now, I want to pause here and just remember that biblical marriage is a wonderful gift from God, but it is not a gospel requirement. And that singles in our church are not people who need to be fixed or fixed up. But nonetheless, I felt called, if God willed, to ask God to make me a godly wife and to work in me such that I could be a helper in all aspects of my life to a godly man. And a year later, I met my husband, Kent Butterfield, and we have been joyfully married for 18 years, walking with the Lord together. And my role as Kent's helper and the mother of our children is my daily witness that we serve a God who lives, hears our prayers, loves his people, liberates captives, and equips us to live fully in Christ as the strongholds of sin are broken down through the grace of Christ's blood. You see, the gospel is always costly, and the gospel is always worth it. If you are someone here today who is struggling against same-sex attraction and you are struggling in God's way, you are, you are rejecting the world. You are rejecting the, the, um, the seduction of the gay rights movement. You are refusing to use labels that are unbiblical. You are standing for biblical, church, biblical truth. You are, you are a member of a Bible-believing church. You are daily in the word. You are serving the Lord. And with God's power and help, you are doing what Galatians 5.17 says. You are fighting that war between the flesh and the spirit. If that is you, then please know I think you're a hero of the faith and not, some, not anything else. The church needs to be a place where we can help people know who they are before a holy God. The gay rights movement is based on a false anthropology, a false understanding of what it means to be human. You will never arrive at a good biblical ethic starting with a wrong anthropology. And so I'm going to close now and just open for questions. So if you, what you can do if you have a question... We don't have that much time because we need to evacuate. As soon as the worship team comes and starts, we need to get out. So if you have a question, please stand up. I was just wondering what you think a Christian approach to gay pride marches should be. Should they protest? Is there a more positive presence or 
Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I think the Christian approach to great gay pride marches is is to to stay away. Um, and I'm going to tell you, it is not it is not because I'm afraid you're going to be harsh ogres. It's because there are a lot of false teachers in the Christian church who are at those gay pride marches who really want your children to believe, and maybe you to believe as well, that gay is just a morally neutral form of personhood and what the Bible needs and what the gospel needs is a revoice and we need to embrace these quote-unquote gay Christians and you know what? These, these are false teachers and, and, and they are, the Bible does not tell you to sit under false teaching. So I think for your own good and for the sake of your own purity, don't go. That's, that's what I think. So it's not because I think you're going to be a jerk. I think it's because you might be vulnerable. Another question? Back there, yes. Can you say it really loudly and I'll repeat it? Oh, or wait, we're going to see Mark run down the aisle. In my work, I've had to attend uh, training with Rainbow Project and various things like that, and I'm supposed to support and direct young people, if need be, to these sort of things. And yet, as a Christian, how do you keep that balance of understanding and, and direction and yet keep your spiritual life right, right in your right, right, right. choice? So, you know, I am going to answer that question as an American... And, and I'm sorry, it's going to be a harsh one. People of God, Christians in Northern Ireland, you need to develop a theology of getting fired. You need to figure out when you cannot do your job because doing your job is sinful and you will be called before the throne of grace to answer for it. You need to figure where that line is. But please do not be over-spiritual about this as you walk into October. You need to have a plan for walking into October. And that plan needs to be what is the line in your profession. You've given me that look. That's my answer. Next question. Okay. The question is, how am I treated today, especially by those people who were part of my life when I was a gay rights activist? I wasn't just the nice lesbian next door selling life insurance. You know, I, I, I was at the belly of this, of this movement. Understandably so, you need to understand that they were betrayed and they were maligned merely by the fact that I became a Christian. In the gay community, there's a lot of moving. If I had left my girlfriend for another woman, there was a narrative for that. If I had left my girlfriend for a man, there was a narrative for that. But to leave her for Jesus, the war, the war's on at that moment. And can you imagine how horrible, genuinely speaking, it would have been to be one of my graduate students who had maybe flown over to Syracuse, flown internationally to work with me in queer theory, and I'm no longer teaching that. You know, and, and your, your career is really, you know, down the toilet before you even start. My friends and the people I loved most in the world were assaulted. They were mangled by my conversion. 
And you know what? I had to face that that was the truth. There was no way to minimize it. I did it. I betrayed them. It was for real. And it was very painful. It was extremely painful. And about three months after my conversion, one of my graduate students tried to commit suicide by setting herself on fire. And I was her faculty advisor, which means I got the phone call that said, can we put morphine in the drip? And I'm like, what? And I realized it was going to be a month in the ICU burn ward. I realized that, that she was going to need our lesbian community. I was going to need my Christian community. And for a month, homeschool moms right next to lesbian activists and professors sat in that waiting room and, and cared for one another as we cared for this student. And at the end of that month when she was released, she needed to be released into a home where there was someone to take care of her. And while we were wonderful people, we had 70-hour-a-week jobs. Your activist professors work very hard. And so you know where she recovered? At Ken and Floyd Smith's house. And so what I discovered is that even when people despise you, you will be able to do works of mercy for them. Do it. The gospel rides very well on the back of mercy. And I, that is the cue. Mark getting up and walking over here is the cue that I am to stop talking. Did I read it right, Mark? You read it right. All right. Thank you very much. So, Rosario, on behalf of the people in Northern Iron, we want to thank you for spending the last few days with us. Um, it's been a real privilege, I think, to have listened to Rosario. Um, there's a lot of challenging thoughts and actions that I think we'll wrestle with for the days to come. But um, I think you've brought us a word in season, and for that we're grateful. So, once again, everybody, can we give Rosario a big thank you? Thank you.